Falter of Galergadian Kolars Nashunta. Is Misha Donald and Ian Agus is on our Vordom A of a Farantina Iha on Shot It's a great privilege for me to be on this stage. You're very welcome. Uh, tonight I'm going to be interviewing not just a master of Irish music, but a global master. It's all about this book, Shared Notes, which is an entertaining and illuminating insight into a musical journey like no other. Please welcome Mr. Music, Martin Hayes. Uh, Martin, we were going to, I was going to start somewhere else entirely, but today uh, we lost Paddy Maloney and it follows hot on the heels um, to the passing of another uh, giant of Irish music, Tony McMahon. And Tony is somebody who features heavily in this book and, and is somebody who has loomed large in your own journey. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I mean, Tony McMahon, you know, as, as you know, we lost him just this weekend, but... A powerful, powerful musician, powerful influence on me. So I'm just going to play a tune, uh, Portnabook here, the music of ghosts, as, as he himself called it. Like, just get a little more direct with it. Yeah. And um, anyway, it's, it's, um, there's a lot of McMahon in the book, and I think that there's a good bit of him in me as well because I think he had a huge influence on me as a child, so.
Paddy Maloney, August Tony McMahon, Aryeshte Gurevananamaka Dilish. Um, Martin, in the first description, I think, or the first mention of Tony is when you played for him. Is that correct? When you were 13 or 14 and he told you to uh, never change what you're doing. So you yeah. stuck to that piece of advice. Yeah, well, th the very first time I met him, I was actually 10, yep. but I didn't play for him. And I, I had come to Dublin here for the first time. And that was, I, I might as well have been going, coming to Manhattan. It was like such a big deal coming to Dublin from Clare then. And uh, so I, w I came with my father and they were doing a Tullochilly band recording of some nature. But anyway, somewhere in the evening we walked down O'Connell Street and we were walking past the GPO and lo and behold there is Tony McMahon coming yesterday. And I knew him well because even at 10 I'd been watching him on the television mm. and had loved his music, even mm -hmm. at that stage, because there was something in his music that even a child could recognize, and, uh, and I recognized it, because whether I liked it or not, he was my favorite. And so it was like meeting your biggest soccer hero or something for any other child, as well. Yeah. For me, it was Tony McMahon. But then some years later, I'm invited, I finally play music in kind of a half-decent way, and I'm about 13 or 14 and I go, I'm playing in, a few, I've been asked to play a few tunes at the folk club in Crusheen in Galligan's and I play there and God, Tony McMahon was there and uh, he seemed to love it and he just comes across with like the big beaming smile afterwards, he comes towards me and he says, God, that's the real thing, don't ever change what you're doing. Now. That was wonderful on one hand, but it was also like immediately a, a problem as well, because of course I'm going to change, but uh, I hopefully understood it as to not change the fundamental of, you know, connecting to music like from a, a, a deeper, more feeling place, you know, yeah. so I, I, I took that as a, a kind of like a blessing to go forward from there in some way, so I, I always felt I never forgot that moment. And he himself had, as we were just talking before, um, Martin, he himself had brought an, a sound of a previous generation to fruition in him, in his, through his music. Uh, and somebody who we're going to talk about in a while, uh, another yes. giant, Joe Cooley, um, you were saying that the way Tony played was the embodiment of, of the way Joe Cooley played. Yeah, I mean, well, anybody who knew Tony's music would, of course, know that uh, he was heavily influenced by this great accordion player from uh, Peter's Well in Galway. And, um, and this Joe Cooley um, was a member of the Tullochilly band that, that I had grown up in. And, um, and Tony, later on, was also a member of the band. Uh, so, so they were kind of friends or colleagues of my father, I suppose. But my father had this deep love of the music of Joe Cooley. And he always felt that there was little twists and turns in, in a tune, you know? Like, one of the things about traditional music is that, yes, of course, we have the melodies and they're quite laid out and clear and stuff like that. But in the better expression of the music, uh, good musicians take certain liberties with notes, with phrases. And there's, they bring their own character and personality into it. So I remember my father saying, like, there was never a tune that Cooley played that he didn't make just a little better because it was <laughs> him. You know, there, there was every tune had just something a little better yeah. than, than you'd ever heard it before. And, uh, and I thought it was a beautiful thing. And, of course, McMahon 
was enthralled and entranced and just taken away by the music of Cooley, yeah. who used to visit his house when yeah. he was young. And, um, and so I, I was, we were talking backstage uh, about it, that um, Joe Cooley, and I, there's a little bit in the book where I describe this, Joe Cooley, in many photographs you would see, he was thrown back like this, right? And the accordion was here, and very often there was a cigarette on the, hanging out of the side of the mouth, and the accordion was pulled open like this. And I don't know, you can't do it in your seats right now, but if you did, there is actually a feeling one gets when you open out like that, when you open your chest forward, you know? And that gesture said almost everything about Joe Cooley's music. And years later, when you see Tony McMahon, you actually see the same physical gesture again. Now, I don't think for a moment that Tony actually imitated mm. the physicality of Cooley's gesturing whatsoever, but that he inhabited the same musical reality and in a sense found himself in that same space, I think. And I sometimes, when the gig is going well, I find myself <laughs> in, the, in that place. And, and I love it. And, and uh, one of the things that I tried to write about in the book was the fact that I, I had only heard Cooley live for a very brief amount of time when I was a child. And there was a recording of him which was made uh, in the final months of his life when he was quite ill. And in a sense, the, the, the recording captures something, but it clearly doesn't capture the, capture the entirety mm. of him. So what has happened is that Cooley began to have an existence in my imagination. And I would at times imagine him playing music. And I would use all these stories and anecdotes that I had heard from my father, from Tony McMahon, from other musicians. And I would just imagine these tunes that I knew he played. And I would hear them in the most glorious kind of expression. And so in, in some moments of music, I feel like, I want to be Cooley. I, I want to be in that world of like free expression, free, you know, soulfulness in a sense, like our ecstatic kind of joy, almost, you know, just full of wild, beautiful energy, you know? And making it better. And, and well, trying to anyway, <laughs> at least trying to imagine I'm there. So th th there's a, a kind of a, a reality where uh, maybe I'll read that little yeah, bit this about... section, I was going to suggest that. ...about Cooley, because, you know... Anyway, I, I won't read too much of the book so that you'll have something to read when you go home. If, uh, you know... But, it's um, so good, I've read it twice. <laughs> yeah, okay. You're a tough man, I'll tell you. <laughs> Fair play to you. Anyway, I, I, I probably don't read any better than I write, sorry. Anyway, um, I know, it's, it's not so bad, like, anyway, but... Um, from hearing the stories and descriptions of the moments of magic he could conjure up, I began to build my own idea of the man and his music. According to my father, before the band were going to play a dance in a local hall, it would be common enough for the people down the village to be looking for Cooley, to bring him away to a pub, to get a few tunes out of him beforehand. My father recalled there was always people pulling and dragging him in some direction or other. It would be time to start the dance, and Cooley would be in full flight, playing in, playing in a pub somewhere. My father would go searching for him, and would then have the difficult task of breaking up the scene to get him out of the pub and back to the hall for the dance. 
I imagine my father arriving at the bar and finding Cooley in the corner with people gathered around him, his head thrown backwards, his chest wide open, a cigarette in his mouth, smoke and drink everywhere, and people shouting, Good man, Cooley. Glory, Cooley. Play the wise maid. Cooley liked to start tunes slowly with a heavy groove and just slightly behind the beat. I'll explain that in a little bit, you know. In a way that seemed to allow him to apply maximum power, a power that would send waves of delight right through the room as he held and extended notes and put his own beautiful twists on the tune. I'm not sure I ever needed to be there because I need only to imagine this scene to feel the music going right through me. I know that the single recording of Cooley doesn't capture his music. Instead, I use the anecdotal stories of my father's reverential love for Joe's music and the echo of Cooley in Tony McMahon's playing to help construct the Joe Cooley of my imagination. He and his music are alive and well deep within me and continue to provide me with lots of inspiration. So anyway, that's a, a little imaginative description of a night at a dance where Cooley is missing in the pub before they have to start, which apparently was a regular occurrence. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, that, that's Joe Cooley was like a big, big figure in Irish music. And anyway, playing behind the beat, let me tell yeah. you what that is. <laughs> so the wise maid was the tune he played like so. So it could go like this. And if you walked into a bar now and there was a session, you might hear it like this. So you might hear it something like that. And uh, there was a lovely description that somebody who was playing with him many years later in San Francisco said when he sat down to play with Cooley, they were doing a performance, and Cooley says, play it nice and tough. <laughs> now, tough was this. like you're kind of like the normal thing is so in a sense that was a kind of very much a feature of Joe's music but you'd also hear an element of that in Tony McMahon too. Mm -hmm. anyway one of the things um, I, that's really interesting you talk about coming to Dublin age 10 and being blinded by the lights but one of the 
really beautiful descriptive passages in the early uh, part of the book is just around about the darkness around walking around the roads and, and your trips back and forth to school and so on and so forth. Um, and, and I think you do yourself a, a disservice about the writing. Um, you put a caveat in the introduction, but it's absolutely as nuanced and lyrical as, as you're playing the, the writing is. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit, Martin, about like what you heard. Um, the, the book opens uh, with um, you at Milltown Malbay as, as the man is on the moon. You're in Milltown Malbay and there's a man on the moon. Yeah. But you're looking at the Tolikali band, you're age seven. And, and maybe you could describe that kind of world that you saw in front of you there. Yeah, I mean, like, so my father is in the Tolikeli band. And uh, so they play about two or three nights a week. So the, the band members are coming in and out of the house and uh, they're packing into a car and they're going off somewhere. And once in a while I'd be brought along. So I remember going to Milton Malbe at age seven. And uh, it was an open air uh, kind of Cayley in the square in Milton Malba and the Tolly Cayley band are playing and uh, and I'm sitting on the side of the stage but it's also I remember somehow being kind of intrigued by the the Apollo mission to the moon which was taking place and uh, so it was the night where Neil Armstrong is to be on the moon and uh, I'm just like like really can't kind of stop looking at the moon, I suppose, you know. But I'm also looking at uh, the, the Tully Kelly band playing. I'm at the side of the stage, and I'm also intrigued by how they could play as many tunes. How would you even know that many tunes? Or how can they do that? You know, it was like something I didn't know how to do, and I was still fascinated by it. And then there was, like, hundreds of people out in front dancing, and there was lots of people standing around with maybe bottles of beer and pig's crew beans, and they're eating. And, uh, the fish and chips of the fi- day. The fish and chips of the day, yeah, as we say. And uh, so it was just that different kind of world that uh, kind of, I suppose, has disappeared, you know, mm. in, in a way. I mean, like, there's still lots of great things going on, don't get me wrong, but uh, there, there was something about that kind of world that... Uh, uh, pretty soon afterwards I knew it was special. Mm. And, uh, because, because your world at home at that point, I, I mean, my own door into traditional music was hearing Kieran McMahona on the radio on Sunday mornings and all the memories that evokes, but you actually had him in your kitchen as opposed to hearing him on the radio and such people, right? So you had this house where because of your father being in the Tully Cayley band, people were coming through all the time. So there was a flow of music. Yeah, there were, there were yeah. People like Kiran Makbahuna used to do broadcasts of traditional music all over the country, and he would go to different locations. But one of his lo- stopping points was our house. And, uh, and so he would, like, do a recording there, and, like, then it would be later broadcast and stuff. And he had a great fondness for the music of that locality and also for the music of uh, Sleeve Lucre, and uh, he spent a lot of time there as well. So a lot of Sleeve Lucre music would not have been heard. A lot of that music of North Kerry and, and that area w- wouldn't have been properly understood, I think, without the continuous yeah. it, broadcasting of it by Kiran Makmahoon, I think, in many ways. Uh, but yes, so the, there was, like, Kiran Makmahoon, uh, there were people like uh, Tommy Potts, Peter O'Loughlin, uh, all of these kind of musicians that, that are named in the book in the Tulla Band and, and lots of local musicians and musicians that were part of my extended family. So there was just no end to the amount of this 
that was uh, coming in out the door. So I, I didn't, for example, ever think that playing music was an extraordinary thing to do or an unusual thing to do. Uh, I, I, I just assumed, like, why wouldn't you? Yeah. You know, I, I should be able to do it if they're able to do it. You know, that's what I kind of thought anyway. But, yeah. but as it turns out, I had no actual aptitude at all for it. Uh, when, when, I, when I got the fiddle in my hands... It, it this is the seventh, uh, you're, you're, soon after that event where it's Christmas, right? So Santa yes. gets involved. Santa gets involved, yes. Uh, and like, you know, at, at that age, you know, Santa is like a, a, some kind of spiritual, uh, mystical entity out there. He's actually better than God, really, because, <laughs> because he brings stuff, you know, actual stuff. And... Uh, but he's 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 right up there, you know, in yeah. in that realm, you know, and uh, so like the fact that he thought I should have a fiddle, I didn't even think to ask for one, yeah. and he got, I think you should have a fiddle. I go, <laughs> Dad, look, you already brought me, you know, a fiddle, and uh, so it was a Christmas day when I was seven years of age, and uh, I actually thought it was like some form of divine intervention and uh, I which was, it was yes which it was and I was there for from that moment forward in my mind a fiddle player and uh, and so I had my little half-sized fiddle and uh, so it's Christmas day and uh, I I asked my father well I don't know which of us asked or how it came about but the moment when he sits in front of me and he, he decides to play a few bars. He plays for, for me the tune he learned as a child, his first tune. And, uh, and he, he repeats like maybe three or four notes and, and go ahead, give it a <laughs> shot. And that's it. That's the beginning and the end of fiddle instruction right there. <laughs> give it a shot. Go ahead. Give it, give it a try. And, uh, and so there was little or no further explanation beyond that so I just literally watched his finger and, and thought like wouldn't it be very convenient well I didn't actually thought that later on I did think it would be great if he was left handed or something because this is actually a puzzle you know I was going, oh okay you know what I mean it wasn't exactly the mirror image that I wanted to imitate so easily but anyway the first tune was called ACA and all the, all the notes we learn, I learned all the notes of the tune and in a sense then knew what notes I was actually playing. So the tune goes A, C, A, A, C, A, A, C, A, D, B, A, C, A, A, C, A, A, C, A, B, A, A, C, A, A, C, A, A, C, A, D, B, E, C, A, and it goes on like that, you know. So anyway, this was what it was.
Talk to me a little bit, Martin, about, about your dad. And Paddy Canny was your, your uncle through marriage, right? And, and I think there's something to be talked about about the way that those two styles of music became really a touchstone for you. I just want to read a little quote about what you said about Paddy Canny when he plays. There was an innate contentment in how he played that seemed directed towards a private silence that required no listener to witness its beauty. What a beautiful description. Um, maybe you could talk about those two styles that were in your immediate family and, and what that kind of meant to you. Yeah, uh, like what, one of the things, the, one of the problems we have with this music sometimes is we think it has to be one thing. We're going, okay, this is how traditional music is, this is it, okay? And of course it's not, it's this, it's a whole bunch of things and it doesn't ever fit neatly within uh, a definition of any kind. It, it just simply won't go into all the nice boxes we want to make for it. Um, but even within a locality where we imagine that there's a particular style, what I found was that like, that was full of inconsistencies too because somebody's playing quite different over here and you know, there's some general characteristics that keep it as one thing, but there's lots of exceptions it seems, like way too many actually. And uh, so I, 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 I did wonder about that. And there was also an idea that I had kind of grown into, which was the idea of your style. Like it was often talked about a musician's style, each, each musician having their style. So that always seemed to be like, okay, play one way and don't play any other way, you know? Uh, but in reality, in East Clare, there were at least two things going on, if I were to narrow it down. One was, there was a kind of a way of playing for house dances and set dancing. And then there was a way of playing between musicians where they shared music between each other and they, they played to each other and for each other. And there was a Dutch anthropologist who was studying the music of East Clare back in the 70s when I was a young fella. And I was just reading about it the other day. He was talking about the music that was strong for the dance. And then what he referred to as the sweet music. And so my father played for the dancers and he had rhythm and drive. And my, and my uncle, Paddy Canny, didn't care for the dancing so much and he was all lyricism and sweetness. And in my early life in music, I, one of my missions was to unify those two things, to, to, to see if, I, if the two things could coexist in some way. So I've often said to people, I, I really do play East Clare music, even though there's nobody actually playing it the way I play it. Um, but in, in an abstract sense, I feel quite connected to it, if that makes sense. So, so my father would, would have played like this, like... One of the tunes you've heard in the gloaming, maybe, so, anyway. But Paddy Canny, on the other hand...
so lyricism for me is the song. It's the voice, it's the human vocal quality. And so I always feel all this music needs to have the song within it. And then the other end of it is the dance, the rhythm, the primal energy, the pulse, the drive. And I feel like I want every tune I play to exist somewhere in a continuum between those two kind of polarities so that there is always the song and there is always the pulse and the rhythm. So I, I would have tried really hard to kind of make that happen. So it would be something like this. Take us through to the period when you joined the Tullock Haley Band and your tea, uh, rosary and biscuits period. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like, a common theme that you, you hear with bands in, in most forms of music, I joined the band for the girls, you know, or like, you know, or to be cool, or, and then there's the sex, drugs and rock and roll uh, ethos of music. Well, I hear that and I go, boy, that was not my reality at all. Uh, I, I was wearing a little blazer and a shirt and tie. Uh, I was a, a we should kind throw of up a, a photo of, of this. Uh, yes, there's a photo in there that gives you the picture. And, uh, and I was in a Cayley band with my dad. And, uh, and, and so I, I was, during the weekends, during secondary school, uh, my weekends were with the Tully Kelly Band, mainly traveling up and down the western seaboard and into the Midlands a bit. So lots of Galway, Limerick, Kerry, Clare, Offaly, uh, Mayo, Sligo, um, Tipperary. That was the kind of main area that we were covering, once in a while to Dublin, but not, not very mm. often. Because mainly we had to be home, go to bed, get up, and make sure the cows were milked, you know, mm. and uh, that kind of thing. So, so we couldn't actually stay overnight anywhere. 
So we'd drive back. And, uh, uh, and my father was uh, quite a devout Catholic, and uh, as was Tommy Potts and mm. Peter O'Loughlin and mm -hmm. a lot of them. And a lot of, there's a kind of a, an image of the traditional musician as this drunken, rowdy kind of character. But, and that is true, that, that rakish personality does exist within the music. But also there were lots of these fiddle players who would wear a suit and tie and a pioneer pen and were religious and upstanding and all of this kind of very conservative and very, you know, well-behaved and good-mannered. Like for my father, like the thing about being decent and decent in every sense, like mm. decent in generous, mm -hmm. decent in how you presented yourself, decent in how you dressed, in how you... So, so there, there were a lot of musicians like that. So that was kind of the mm -hmm. world of music that I was kind of inhabiting. Mm -hmm. So my father had this habit, and he talked nothing of it whatsoever on the way home from the Cayley to take out her rosary beads and, uh, and start the rosary. And, like, boy, like, we, we made a fine art of mumbling that. And, uh, <laughs> and of, like, you know, as the, as the end of the Hail Mary and the, as the Holy Mary was coming in, we kind of shoot in before the first part was <laughs> over and kind of, like, economize and kind of bring it to a, you know, a, a conclusion faster, faster you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so, I, I, you know, this was an awkward moment, especially when Andrew McNamara was in the band and he was, like, my own age. We were there we were going, oh, no, the rosary. The embarrassment. Like, yeah. oh, no. And we had to because my father was just this kind of honest, open, genuine kind yeah. of human being and there was nothing malicious yeah. in it. There was nothing. It was just him and yeah. that's the way he was. Yeah. And we couldn't really object to it. And yeah. So we always went along with it. And, uh, and so, so this was like, there was no sex or drugs or rock and roll, there was the rosary. And, um, <laughs> and then there was another man in the band, his name was Jack McDonald, and he was a drummer. And, uh, and he always felt that, like, after a Cayley on the way home, we should take a break and there should be a cup of tea. Now, so he brought a flask <laughs> and he brought a packet of gold grain biscuits and four cups. And, um, and we, the driver was the accordion player who by day was a mechanic and he loved his car and it was spotlessly clean and so he's gone, there will be no gold grain biscuits or tea in this car, thank you. So Jack's response to this was to bring a tablecloth and then set that out <laughs> on, on the hood of the car. So like at three o'clock in the morning, like, you know, we're standing around the car, like having tea and biscuits. And, like, three of us would really prefer to be much closer to home now and be on our way home, but we knew Jack liked this somehow. And so I, I have this memory of uh, that road coming into Adair yeah. from Newcastle West, where you kind of pull into it. I, I just have... I, I drive by there still, and I look at it, and I go, I remember us standing there at 3 o'clock in the morning <laughs> having tea and gold grain biscuits. I'm thinking... What a sight. So that's the sex, drugs, and rock and roll for you, kind of. Uh... I also love the bit about the ultimate. If the after party went on too long, you could get straight into the milking when you went home. That happened. I, I remember, like, if, if, if it was on a Saturday, on Sunday morning, there was early creamery. Meant, like, that the milk had to get there uh, an hour earlier than normal weekdays. 
and uh, which meant that, uh, like, if we were coming home from Sligo on a Saturday night, my father would be calculating, just as we were getting to the house, like, whether it was actually worth going into bed at all, really. Shouldn't you maybe just put on your Wellingtons now and go get the cows? And this happened many times. And it was like, oh, I would be just, like, dreaming about my bed. But, <laughs> yeah, the next encounter was really cow dung, you know, and... Uh, and we did that, and yeah. uh, we just kept going and milked the cows and did all that, and just kept going and went to mass and still hadn't gone to bed. So then we would like sleep rock and the roll. afternoon. Yeah, that was um, the rock and roll bit, yeah. But um, Martin, like, I think if I remember it correctly, the way you described um, you know, your encounters with these men was that there was a doctrine of soulfulness that you picked up from, from these people, and, and clearly, like it was such a rich place to be for, for you with your... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was very fortunate, like from a musical point of view, to be surrounded by like some really amazing uh, personalities. And not just amazing musicians, but human beings with, with a depth of understanding and a depth of feeling. It wasn't how great they were, it was how great they understood the feeling of things and the feeling of music. And, um, and like, there was like some humble musicians and some very great musicians, but in a way I didn't make much of a distinction between either, because um, a not so great player, quote unquote, was still capable of carrying the great soul and feeling of the music, even if they couldn't necessarily deliver it with like pristine finesse. That wasn't the point. The point was like how they sensed things, you know? And uh, so I, I was very fortunate to, I suppose, be invited into that kind of intimacy of music mm -hmm. with those people. And uh, to have people like Martin Rochford say, I have a lovely tune for you. It goes like this. And he would pull out that note that he knew was the most important in the melody. So I, I would just be kind of absorbing this kind of understanding of the melody, you know. So like the tune would be, you know, going like this, you know. So the, it, it was that kind of sensibility, that kind of uh, mm. softness and sweetness. Mm. And yeah. The, the, and as well as that, the absorbent part where you're out with them and you're, you're feeling and taking stuff from them, they're giving you uh, tunes. 
There's the private journey, which is kind of conducted in the bathroom where this resonant place. <laughs> but just talk to, about maybe, yeah, you know. Will, yeah, that needs a bit of context here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Toilet humor, sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, it's just like, again, yeah. a wonderful passage of. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. The section where you talk about just those moments where you start to go inside and you start to take it really seriously and you start to really, you know, yeah, start yeah. to really mine for the yeah, feeling yeah. yourself. Yeah. Well, uh, of course, yeah. And, and the, the bathroom reference is, is the reference to the fact that uh, in playing the fiddle, I, I searched the house for the room with the most uh, encouraging acoustics, the, the, the room that rang the most, the room that kind of made the fiddle sound the most resonant and gave it the... You know, I get the deep spot. Well, it turned out to be the bathroom. So I, I spent many hours sitting on the side of the bathtub uh, with my eyes closed. And the instructions in music that I had received were, were never really about, you know, here's how to do this triplet, here's how to put this roll in here. You know, this is, you need to figure this out, you need to do that, and you need to work on that. You should lock yourself away and practice that. It was never any of that at all. But it was a search for, for a feeling and a search for an expression, and a search for, well, a, a search to be lost, you know, to lose oneself, to become absorbed, to simply experience music, and to feel the, the dreart, the magic, the, you know, the, you know the, old, the deep, sweet melancholy of it in some ways, uh, uh, which I was really seeking out in those years. And so, a lot of it was about playing the simplest tune first and avoiding all of the technical challenge in some ways and just sinking deeply into the feeling and being being led by that then. You know, be, like, my feeling was that technique and the technical ability to play uh, followed the desire to express and it kind of made itself available as as my emotional sense of the music got a little deeper. This is, I know, quite... I'm good crack, too. Like, I'm not all, you know, just this kind of stuff. We'll but, get on uh, to that bit. But, 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 you know, but, but yes, like, there is that side of me, of course, and, and it's, it's very much a, a part of the music. But that, that, was, that was the kind of a teenager I was, so it was little wonder there weren't girls around, you know? Uh, you know, it's... Uh, but anyway, that was, that was how it was. Uh, I'm conscious of being in the early chapters and, and wanting to keep the story moving on. <laughs> but, so, so look, let's skip forward um, to, to when you go to college and, and, and there's a, a, a long stretch there where things don't quite go as well as those early years and, and where there's you know, a period of, um, I suppose, you, you go to, to UL and, and things don't really work out too well there and, and, and afterwards as well, in the immediate aftermath. Yeah, no, the, 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 see, the problem here was, like, like my life as, as a teenager was consumed by music, and my life was my identity, it was everything that was important to me was really in music. And at that particular time, in, in 1980, for example, there was almost no possibility of doing this as a livelihood or a career. In fact, it was a laughable idea. One would never imagine even attempting to do it. And the other thing was that whereas one could actually go to study this now or you could uh, 
go to college and find ways to further develop that idea now, it's entirely possible. Um, in those years, it wasn't. And, uh, you know, I would have had to be able to play some Mozart or Brahms or something just to even get past the audition mm -hmm. to, to be in a music school. But anyway, I, I didn't have a particular interest in studying some other kind of music. Mm -hmm. I, I only really loved this. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, I got to college like, because people say, well, you should educate yourself. You need to be realistic here, Martin. You need to you know, get qualified and get a job. Get a job, you know, and uh, do something. So there was a lot of do something and get a job of some kind. So I found myself, uh, I wasn't a particularly diligent student, so I had kind of an average kind of leave insert, you know. I was like one of those students that was always making himself invisible in secondary school mm -hmm. and just never, you know, committing and never being really engaged in that part of it. But anyway, so, so I, get, I get to college then and I'm studying like accounting and statistics and things like that and it becomes apparent pretty soon, like that, eh, not really my thing, and uh, and I don't develop a passion for it. I don't really connect with it, um, and so I, I start maybe consciously or unconsciously finding every other kind of interest, you know. Mm -hmm. And so one of them was a kind of a, a residual involvement in Finnafall. Okay, so I know there's only twenty percent of the audience that think that's a good idea right now, but anyway. Uh, Maybe less, but anyway, <laughs> however, the, the thing about politics like that, like Fianna Fáil, Fingal, all that kind of thing down the country, is that it's in fact, um, it, it's not really ideological belief systems or anything like that, it's, it's purely identity, and, uh, and it may have started out as a, a, an ideological alignment of some type or other, but by the time I come around, it's really, you know, it's who we are. And one of my favourite memories of door-to-door uh, -door campaigning was when you would knock on some doors down in East Clare and somebody would open the door and say, Asha, we, we are Fianna Fáil. We're Fianna Fáil. Another door would say, we're Fianna Gael. Well, it's interesting to observe and that sentence. We are mm. Fianna Fáil. We are Fianna Gael. So we were Fianna Fáil. And uh, so I kind of, like, I, I, I had a kind of taken on the traditional world around me. So politics became part of it as well. So I, and there was a very important kind of influential musical and political character mm. by the name of Dr. Bill Lucknan, yeah. who was also a member of the Tully Kelly Band and her, turned out to be a member of the Doll. And uh, so, I, so I came under his influence and I would find myself involved in his election campaign. So slowly, and then my father would be going to Finna Fall meetings, and I would find myself part of that. Now, had I thought this out? No, of course. Did I even know what I thought? Not really. Uh, like, but I was involved, and so, you know, you just, as I, I think I say in the book, once you're involved, nobody really asks you why you're involved. <laughs> uh, you're just in the club. It's a secret society where, you know, so the, the, the whole motto of the club is defend the club. Mm -hmm. you, know, just, you know, it's like asking somebody, well, why do you actually support the Manchester soccer team? Like, why? Well, nobody can really answer that. Mm. Not absolutely, like, because mm -hmm. it could be any team. Like, mm -hmm. But anyway, it's the same with politics in a way. But anyway, I... I well, the bottom line was, I eventually end up drinking a lot. Mm -hmm. I end up doing a lot of politics. I end up doing a lot of student union politics. I end up doing everything except statistics and accounting <laughs> and business studies. 
and so my academic career just kind of fizzles out over the course of about three years. I'm hanging on, but I, mm -hmm. I don't. I keep thinking, oh, I'm going to knuckle down now, but I never did. So I kind of fizzled out of there, and um, I'm at home the summer after I do that. Things are not so great around the house, and uh, then there's a, a start your own business course down in the local hall. I go down. I think I'll check that out. Anyway, it was a time when there was no jobs. I knew I didn't want to be in marketing, sales, or accounting. So I thought, well, entrepreneurship. Okay, right, so I, I, I do a little bit of that. I study, I go through the course and whatnot. And uh, so, so, so one of the people leading the course said, I've, I'm just reading in the paper about this company down at Tipperary. They produce this, this new food that's, uh, you know, it's kind of in these lovely earthenware dishes. They're winning lots of awards and things. Why don't you talk to them about getting a, distrib a distributorship or something like that? So I did. So, you know... Bit by bit, I found myself in the world of frozen food. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and like, so this, this so I, I, I set up this company. I get a van with yeah. a freezer box. I, I go to the bank, I borrow money, I set up the business. I, I, I start taking samples. I go all around the country. I'm, I'm going to make money. And when I make money, then I'll play lots of music. That's the plan. But anyway, um, I come home one evening and, I, and uh, I get a letter, company in receivership. It was in receivership. It never actually started. Like, it, it, like they, they went broke before they got going. The assets were frozen. Hmm? The assets were frozen. That's right. The assets were very good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, well then I, I, I got another frozen food company, but they actually produced TV dinners, so there was not much dignity in this. This was like a, a kind I, of a, I, I low, just... a low point for me, but anyway... I, Martin, I wanted, there's, there's one section where you're in somewhere, I think it's in uh, Budaik, is that the name of yeah, the village? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you have a number of these frozen TV dinners. Yeah, yeah. And, and you have, you, you, you distributed them uh, to the people in the bar. But there's, I mean, if this ever gets made into a movie, that's going to be a pretty funny section of the image of you sitting in the bar, dishing out the free meals. And yeah, I yeah. think for somebody who, 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 who makes such natural and nourishing music, it's a very funny scene. You, you, <laughs> well, that frozen it, foods period. I, I was trying to disprove the notion that there's no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> and, uh, and so, I, so I, I, just, like, I was just looking at these poor misfortunes. If you're drinking at three o'clock in the day inside the pub, you might as well get a free lunch, you know, because, uh, you know, there's not much else going on, really, yeah. if that's happening. But I, I found myself in their company kind of drinking my own sorrow away, like, going, yeah. OK, I'm going bust. So gradually, I, I, I just find myself in debt because the second frozen food company also went into receivership. And uh, so, uh, so, like, it was like, I mean, if there's such a thing as destiny, uh, like, it was speaking to me, and it said, you are not going to succeed in frozen food. Get out of it now. It's a bad thing. And I kind of, like, so life has a way of kind of... Uh, corralling you where it should go, you know, and uh, yeah. so I I, 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 those all kinds of things, I break my ankle, mm -hmm. I end up in America, I'm kind of in debt, uh, yeah. I, I start playing with a kind of some low, other musicians that I know, but it's kind of like wedding band music mm -hmm. and we're playing in Irish centres and stuff and that fizzles out and then I find myself on a construction site, mm -hmm. you know, with a badly broken, poorly recovering ankle and uh, it's very painful and I'm kind of not very good at carpentry either. <laughs> and, 
and so I'm, I'm a laborer, and uh, so things are kind of not going well. Yeah, I and think you described that moment of, of being, going from the, the frozen food to being on the site in Chicago, and there's timbers that are stuck together, frozen together, and you're freezing. And I think, is that the day that the phrase, there must be a better way, or is that later <laughs> That's on? That's right, Jay, it was, yeah. <laughs> well, it was kind of um, like, you know, in theory, you would work the construction business in Chicago up until the wintertime, and you would, like, as it's approaching winter, in theory, you would have some money laid aside, and you would be fine for the winter, and they would, uh, my, me and my buddy, we, we didn't have that plan, and mm. we, we weren't really in that position. So we needed some other, some guy just as crazy as us, like that had a construction business that was continuing into December, like in Chicago. I, I can't even begin to describe what this was. But mm. anyway, like there was snow on the ground, there was muck on the ground, there was ice. And, um, and, and, and then some guy with a truck delivers like an entire truckload of roof trusses at the wrong end of the road down from the house. And Martin McLaughlin, the construction guy from Donegal, he says to myself and Jerry, my buddy from Clare, he says, lads, you'll have to bring those up here. And we went down and I tried to lift one. <laughs> and I go, oh my God, like it took everything I had. Like I was absolutely killed after getting one back, trudging through the muck and the snow. Mm. And the, oh God. I turned to Jerry and I said, Jerry, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way than this. So, uh, uh, you know, so Jerry is a friend of mine in Chicago. And so whenever I see him, he goes, oh, do you remember the day when you turned around and you said, there's got to be a better way. And, uh, but in some curious ways, like that whole experience of failing in life, of losing, of not succeeding, of um, having, I, I suppose, by the time I left secondary school, I would have at least feigned humility, but probably deep down I was quite egotistical and arrogant in my own way, although it would be well hidden. Mm -hmm. But by the time I'm finished with the construction sites in Chicago, and by the time I'm finished playing Danny Boy, for the thousandth time mm. in a bar in Chicago. I, I don't have too much ego left. I, I'm kind of uh, pretty much worn down from it now. I'm, I'm, I'm brought to my knees, really. Um, and things came to a head, and as Patrick Crane said in the Irish Times, yes, it yeah, was Paul yeah. McHugh's head um, that yeah, they yeah. came to with the fiddle. And, and that, I suppose, there's a long, there's a period there of disenchantment, but that moment in 1988, St. Patrick's Day, in 1988, and again, the detail is in the book, uh, but I, I love the description of, of um, I think you were on the Sheriff's float early in the morning, That's right, and then yeah. you went to Tommy Gunn's pub, which is a good name for That's to, right, to yeah. be, it was and an then gangster hangout. Maybe yeah. you could just tell us what, what actually happened and how that came about. Well, yeah, I, I was basically playing um, lots of bars and kind of cabaret clubs in Chicago, and, you know, I'm playing the Black Velvet Band. It's a bit like um, what goes on here in Temple Bar. A little bit like that. I remember talking to Gary here at the concert hall. I go, Gary, do you ever go down to Temple Bar to find Axe for the concert hall? I go, and he goes, no. <laughs> like, and I go, I said, you know, like, that's where I was. That's where I was for, for years. I, I was in, like, a corner of one of those bars um, playing things that, didn't mean anything to me. In fact, actually playing things that were hurtful for me to play, really. And uh, 
and you know, really thinking that the beautiful experience of my childhood, the, the beautiful music of McMahon and Cooley and Potts and all of this stuff was just some kind of fantasy world that had gradually faded away and I had landed in, quote-unquote, the real world. And the real world was a kind of a cruel place uh, where my sensitivities of music had no place and where the, the feeling and expression had no outlet. And um, But I was glad to be off the construction site, even if I was playing music that was like hurting me, or that was, in a sense, almost like a moral transgression for me. So every time I played it, I was kind of cutting into my own soul in a way. I was kind of committing a, a kind of a sin against the music in a, in a certain sense, against what I knew better inside my my own debt. So, on St. Patrick's Day in 1988, myself and Paul McHugh were not getting along well, anyhow. And uh, it had been building up for a while. But the frustration, like, would have seemed to me like I was very angry at Paul. But on, on deeper reflection, I was very angry at myself. I was very angry at who I'd become. I was very angry at how much I had failed and how pathetic my future had become. And so he said something kind of, can never remember the exact words he used, like, but it felt like dismissive and denigrating. And I always knew I had something that couldn't be dismissed like that. Mm -hmm. And in, in those words, a, a moment of fury came upon me and I just <laughs> like that. And I, did an unbelievable thing. I had broke the most precious, one of the most precious things in my life, my fiddle. And, uh, and uh, I, I broke the bow then. You followed up with the bow, I followed right? up with the bow, yeah. Just to, just was, so I might as well go all the way. Left now. and right. So, uh, so, I, was, so I, I, I picked up my, <coughs> my instrument and the bits of it, and I put it in the fiddle case, and I just headed straight for the front door. And as I was heading to the front door, a friend of mine was driving right by, and I hopped in the car, and I go, keep going. So we made a getaway. So by all accounts, afterwards, half the bar came out to find out where I had disappeared to, and I had vanished almost immediately. So, but that was literally and figuratively a breaking point. And it was a moment from which I said, if I ever perform on a stage again, it will always have to be something that's at least intellectually true, or at least emotionally searching, at least something of curious value to me, it's something that's a journey, something that's an effort, something that's a discovery, something, it has to be real, it has to be about something. So from that moment forward, I, I really began to um, think about life in a very different way. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about the book that I enjoyed so much is just how you um, illustrate or paint a picture of, of how you went about those changes and something that really resonated was that you stopped kind of trying to see where you were going or how far or, or the bigger sort of journey and just started concentrating on each step and that served you well, that, that philosophy. Yeah, because like it, 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 we, we can't really tell where we're headed most of the time. And we can't re we can make plans, but we can't be sure that those plans will turn to anything. We can't really tell where they will lead, but we can at least, in every act and action, 
do everything with some passion, some courage, with some integrity, with some level of fearlessness, hopefully. And it has taken me some years to acquire that, but, but the idea of not knowing the outcome, not knowing the future, but in a sense embracing it nonetheless and being willing to take the risks and the challenges and, and just, I suppose, I didn't know where to go, I didn't know how to go, but I just said to myself, okay, if I take every step with some measure of consciousness and integrity, I think I can find my way to some other place. And so, like, I had little other means beyond that to kind of chart a path from this kind of, you know, drunken, broken fiddle, unmusical career crashed moment. Mm -hmm. I, I'm also an undocumented worker in Chicago with debts back in Ireland. I Like, absolutely, I have done nothing except create a disaster all the way through. So I, I have to mm -hmm. do something. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that's when, essentially... So then those changes, which included stopping drinking, stopping smoking, stopping eating meat, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in a few years... Um, you're back in, in, in Milltown Malby in 1993, right? And, yes. and I think you described that moment as realizing having come back and performed at the fiddle recital and the reception that you got, that um, you felt that it wasn't an illusion and, and that became very apparent at that point. Yeah, I, I, I don't I mean, I'm sure many of you would have been to the Willie Clancy Summer School and uh, they, they do a series of fiddle recitals. Uh, and again, Tony McMahon was the man that mm. kind of came to the rescue in that moment. F somehow I, I had just made a little recording oh, with Boston my father, yeah. uh, uh, like a duet recording. I came back mm -hmm. on a visit and we made a recording together because my father had been quite ill. Yeah. But I suspect that Tony heard that and he go, I imagine Martin is resurfacing from some kind of... The wilderness. Like, there was rumours about me having, like, he's gone, he's lost. Yeah. We lost him. He's, <laughs> he's not with us anymore. In fact, there was a terrible night in Chicago when I, I was playing all my worst stuff and Noel Hill turned up and I was, oh, God. And he was sitting there watching me and he knew the pedigree, the background, the experience, and he's gone, oh, my God, what has happened to this guy? And uh, another night I met it in Kitty O'Shea's in the Hilton and in walks Paddy Maloney and all the chieftains and I go, oh God, no, not again. And like Sean Keane and Matt Malai both knew who I was, you know, and like, and I was like, I, like I couldn't be far enough away to hide mm -hmm. with, the, with the things I was doing, you know, I was kind of shameful. But mm -hmm. anyway, there I was. I, what was, sorry, I'm after diverging from No, the yeah, no, so, so you're coming back and you, you have this oh, moment yes, in yeah, 93, yeah. yeah. So Tony McMahon brought me back to do a television program. The Blackbird and the Bell, yeah. Well, it wasn't the Blackbird and the Bell, there was another one before that. Uh, um, and, and he organised for me to teach at the Willie Clancy week for the week he talked to Morris Rohan. And so they said, well, maybe give him a chance, maybe he can be re rehabilitated. And so I come back and I play just a couple of tunes at the Willie Clancy Summer School, but... I suppose my way of playing was maybe it had developed or I, I don't know, or maybe, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but the place just kind of erupted. Ireland had developed, maybe. Yeah, it just kind of, like, suddenly people, like, loved it. Yeah. 
And I was like, oh my God. And everybody was saying, where's your record? Or have you made a record? Or I hadn't done anything. And uh, so I started really thinking about, mm-hmm. I should make a record, I think, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was, um, it was just the moment I, I think I played this tune. Uh, so, so tunes can be varied and twisted quite a bit. Here's how this tune was originally. Now, in music, things in minor keys for me are a little deeper, a little more melancholic. So I sometimes say, you know, I'll make that tune minor instead of major. So I say... Then I go. And then I think, okay, so that G minor, I think C minor is sadder. Then I make variations on that. Just we've got to this studio practice finally. So you, you, one of the things that again comes across in the book uh, very much is about how you know the music of what happens and about how it's music to be experienced. And and you speak very eloquently about how some of the greats were never captured, and you give good reasons why. But your own entry into the world of 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 working in the studio. I mean, you started off, but very quickly you adapted to to that practice and and thrived within it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we can make choices and decisions uh, about lots of things with our intellectual capacity, and there's no shortage of that in the human 
world. Uh, we, we are intellectually driven as people. Uh, but music requires you to also inhabit your body. It requires you to listen with your heart. It requires you to respond with your gut. When you're in the studio, you, you intellectually can't tell what's good or bad anymore after a little while. And, uh, and, but you have to keep your sense of feeling in your heart, in your gut, in your body, like in your intuition. You, you have to keep that part of you alert or engaged in some way so that it can, in fact, decide what's actually real and what's not. And it's, it's, it's a difficult enough process. Like, um, I, I, this, like I, I've rarely come out of the studio, on the other hand, this is the flip side of it, I have rarely come out after making an album when I didn't think of, oh my God, that was terrible. Oh, God. And I just, you know, have to walk away from it eventually, you know. That's, that's the other side of it. Like, I, I'm kind of, um, you know, sooner or later, everything I do looks hopeless. And, uh, and you just have to abandon it. But I've learned, of course, that uh, what happens in, in the process of recording or anything like that, or even maybe writing a book, is that uh, you at least get it off your desk. And, and by doing that, you open the door to another level of possibility. And you put something to bed. You finish an idea, uh, you move on, and, and, and new possibilities can happen. So like, that's one of the values of recording. Even if there's no money for making albums now, mm -hmm. at least there's that. You, know? mm -hmm. you, you can move on after yeah. you make them. Yeah, know? it's another step, one of those steps. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to, again, conscious of the time, because I want to get on to, to more uh, recent endeavors. But so we're skipping forward through a whole period in, in America where things are going well. And, and I think another thing that comes across in the book is just how, you know, such a culturally rich place that it really does change you and you absorb so much while you're there, right? So in, including other musics from other forms, right? Yeah, I mean, like America, you know, you can turn on the news and you can, like, today be in shock and horror just watching what's going on in America. And uh, it, it can be a quite an appalling place. But underneath the surface and um, back down at the street level, uh, it's still a hugely rich multicultural environment. And uh, it's rich in cultural ideas in, in a way that we sometimes forget. We think it's Hollywood and McDonald's and all that kind of thing. But like Chicago, for example, like is one of the most multicultural cities on the planet. Like every form of Eastern European music, every form of Indian music, jazz music, rhythm and blues, country music, classical music, folk music. There's just no end to it. There's no end to the food. There's no end to the, to the amount of philosophical and religious viewpoints and choices and all, all of that. Like, so it's, it's an enormously rich reality yep. behind it all, mm -hmm. behind the incredibly dispiriting politics we see. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, do, I continue to have a great affection for it because of that and mm -hmm. because of what it is at that level, you know. And... and at the time you get to make The Lonesome Touch, which is something I want to talk about uh, with Dennis Cahill, um, 
by that time, all of those influences are kind of internalized and, and you're in a new space in terms of how you see what you want to make. And I think maybe it's around that time where you start to notice that it's not just about uh, an Irish uh, parameter, but you have a universal one in your mind when it comes to the act of making music. Yeah, I mean, I, I begin to think that, um, you know, I, Irish music is has perhaps a potential to be universally understood, you know, that, that, that um, I mean, and, uh, as time has gone on, I've, I began to experience that, whether it's like playing in India or whether it's playing in Japan or in Norway or Holland or Italy or wherever, that there is a, a natural beauty in the melody, there's a, a, an emotional power in the music that is truly capable of connecting. And uh, I, you know, so I, I've, I've looked to kind of distill my music making down to what I believe to be the, the innate and natural beauty of the melody, which is the foundation of our music. Our music is really fundam at a fundamental level. It is thousands upon thousands of melodic ideas. In fact, the, the, the very first uh, thing in the book here, I have a quote, it's like, It'd be the first thing you'll read if you, if you actually if you read this book, you know. Um, description of a traditional folk melody. In their small way, they are perfect as the grandest masterpieces of musical art. They are, indeed, classical models of the way in which a musical idea can be expressed in all its freshness and shapeliness. In short, in the very best possible way, in the briefest possible form and with the simplest of means. That's Bella Bartok describing a folk melody. And I thought, you know, there is a profound richness and beauty in the folk tradition of this country, in the shanos, in the melodies, in the ancient harp melodies, in the music collected in West Cork and West Kerry and Clare and Donegal, uh, the, the richness of melody is profound. And, um, and so, like at a certain point, I, I realized that all I should really be doing is let the beauty of the melody be heard. Don't get in the way of it. Just let what's already naturally beautiful come true and only do what you need to do to support the beauty that's there. So this was the philosophy that Dennis and I were embracing, which was, let's only play the notes we need to play. Like, let, if it only requires two notes for the guitar, well then let it be just two notes. And I won't bother with anything either, I'll just keep it nice and simple, so it'll be...
When I was uh, preparing for the interview, I forgot that you were going to be playing in between making it all all right. So, uh, yeah, yeah. so wonderful to hear. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about just that connection with Dennis, because I know like throughout the book, you talk about collaboration. And I think the early examples, Mary McNamara, um, again, from the family, would be somebody that you played with and had that connection with and, and that you played to each other and together in a, in a really unified way. You, you describe with, when it comes to Dennis, of, of trying to be both hands in, in playing the piano, each, each yeah, one hand. Yeah, yeah, we, we, there's a kind of a, um, a kind of a physical coordination that yeah. happens between musicians. Like, it's kind of like a mind meld, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a... It's like maybe if you watch a couple dance and they really do move together. Mm -hmm. they, they sense that. The, like the, the slightest cue tells the other and there's no confusion mm -hmm. as to the movement. They don't fight each other in any way. It's a bit like that. There's a kind of a dance that goes on. So, so the way I, that like Dennis and I described it was, imagine we are one human being playing the tune. Imagine we are two hands on the piano. Beautiful. That's like that the, the, the one hand integrates into the other automatically. So that was the, the kind of aspired to level of connection we were looking for, you know. And, and we did yeah, you I got there. at yeah. times get there, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. You know? Yeah, um, uh, and, and it being a very integrated and interlocking thing. And, and yes, yeah. Uh, and, and it was about, um, like, the idea was that instead of him being the accompanist or me showing off on the fiddle or something like that, it became almost not about my fiddle playing or even not about the guitar playing. It became about the melody. And it became about just doing only what was needed for that melody. And in a sense, I, I, I began to launch a career that was centered on the beauty of the melody which meant that I was no longer sitting on the stage worried whether I was a good enough fiddle player or not to be actually sitting there. It didn't matter anymore uh, because it wasn't about my fiddle playing. It was about the piece of music. And so, like, surrendering to that was kind of what Dennis and I both attempted to do. Mm -hmm. Just give yourself to that idea. Serve that royalty. Serve that idea, and then you'll be kind of looked after, as it were. Like, yeah. you'll, you'll have a career in theory, and at least... The, the, the inner beauty of the music can potentially be delivered to an audience. You know? and, and how, I mean, in, in such spectacular fashion, because doors open and, and you find yourself playing all over the world on stages like this in, in other cities, other capital cities, yeah. taking this music and serving the melody to an international audience. Yeah, it, it, it kind of went gradually, I suppose, you know, it, it, it built up and, like, there were some lucky opportunities here and there. I mean, like, we're not, like, commercially hugely successful. Like, let's not, like, pretend that we're not. Uh, but but I, I've had enough good fortune to play in a room like this pretty regularly and to do that in other rooms around the world and to have been able to live in the depth of my own passion mm -hmm. and to live out of the beautiful feeling of music and uh, to like I feel infinitely lucky um, and fortunate and grateful for that uh, I, I'll never forget it because I mean like carrying lumber on a site in Chicago taught me how to truly 
appreciate this and to how never to forget how mm. easily it would be that this might not have been the case and how, you know... I, I think we're the lucky ones, you say. Um, <laughs> Talk just a little bit. Um, we're coming to somewhere towards the end of the journey. <laughs> yeah. but, um, I'm sorry. If it, is, is it too much? Do you want to head off? Like, or, <laughs> I mean, I it's see. all in here anyway. You know. I mean, don't, okay. don't worry. Speaking of what's in here, um, just after Martin will be outside um, to sign the book. So um, again, uh, my recommendation is wholehearted. Um, I just want to skip forward a little bit. I know Gary's here, but um, so. The, the, the way the gloaming came together and how that kind of uh, happened. Um, again, one of the lovely parts of the book is, is, is reading just how Thomas Bartlett, uh, that story, and uh, I know I'd heard versions of that, but um, so Thomas Bartlett was, came with his family to, to Ireland uh, as a 12-year-old and, and followed you around. And within a year, he had followed up by booking you to play, right? Is that, is that how it works? Yeah, that's correct. In yeah, Vermont. Yeah. In yeah. Vermont, yeah. We, we, and him and another teenage Sam, Amidon, brought yeah. you over. But we, right. we, we, <laughs> we get forward, or we skip forward several years later, and, and how did it actually kind of transpire? It was you and Irla kind of making the initial... Yeah, uh, uh, Gary and uh, Gary Sheehan, who's the director of programming here at the concert hall, and uh, who's been... A collaborator with me because uh, the collaboration in music is, is a collaboration beyond the actual playing of, of instruments. Sometimes it's a collaboration of ideas and the creation of projects. So anyway, I've been working with Gary for many years. But in the initial formation of the, the Gloaming, uh, Gary was uh, managing Irla O'Lenard at the time. And uh, we were at the annual showcase event for musicians uh, in the arts performing world in New York, an APAP, annual event, APAP, yeah, APAP in New yeah. York every January. And, uh, and so Gary approached me uh, about, you know, maybe Irla and Dennis and myself doing something, you know. And so I thought about it, but uh, I actually knew Irla and I knew Dennis and I knew me and I knew it wouldn't, <laughs> and, and I knew it wouldn't actually work, even though I completely loved earless singing like i mean he's the best like yeah. so i i i, I just well, thought, why did you know it wouldn't work hmm? why did you know it wouldn't work I, I knew it wouldn't work because um there's a particular kind of soundscape that needs to be created right. and uh it wasn't really dennis's kind of way of thinking gotcha. and i knew that uh, Dennis had a different way of operating that was kind of very heavily oriented on, at this stage into how I'm playing tunes yep. and stuff. And so I know it, it didn't extend necessarily into that realm yeah. Yeah. in that sense. So I, but a few days after I meet Gary and, and Irla, uh, I, I have a, a, made a studio appointment with Thomas to go to his studio in New York just for a kind of a, a jam session. Now, he's thinking we'll make an album, and I'm thinking we'll just, well, we'll, we'll just jam. We'll just see what comes out, you know. I, I would, wasn't sure about anything, but in, in the process of doing that, um, the idea occurs to me, you know, if Thomas was in this with Dennis and I, then I think Irla would have the necessary connective tissue to actually really connect mm. with us and make it. So then I'm walking around with this kind of quartet idea in my head as, as a possible thing. And, but there's a niggling, something is troubling me about it. Like I feel like 
uh, like it's piano and guitar and just a vocal. I feel like, well, will, when I'm playing the fiddle, will it be just the guitar? I feel like it'll be too much guitar and piano and not enough uh, melody instruments in that sense. Uh, so I, I, I'd already been working with Cuevie and O'Reilly. And through her, in, yeah. And through her with yeah. Pedro Rida. And I thought, you know what? He'd be good. Like, like I'd be able to bounce off of him. But so that, so I, you know, intuitively, bit by bit, I kind of began to imagine this band. Well, not imagine what we'd play exactly, but imagine the people in it and imagine the kind of cross-pollination kind of possibilities and the, the, the compatibilities that, that exist between these people. Because I had worked with all of them individually. And I thought, yeah, he'd be good with him and, that, and that, he'll be able to do this part with this guy and blah, 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 blah. And so I kind of began to imagine the band, as it were, you know. That imagination again, that imagined Joe Cooley into existence. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so maybe you were going to illustrate sort of where, where that took you. And, and yeah, well, there's, there's, like, I think one of the tracks that's most popular um, on Spotify, now you can't really tell from Spotify, like... In yeah. your bank account, if it's popular or not, like, but, uh, but, 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 but we, we, you can read numbers like between Apple Music and Spotify, there were several million streams of this particular tune, and it's a tune called the Sailor's Bonnet, and the Sailor's Bonnet is a tune that was made popular in the twenties, I think, nineteen twenties, by the famous Sligo fiddle player who recorded New York, Michael Coleman. And, um, and so every traditional musician from here to Timbuktu plays the tune. It will crop up in a session. And like, you get so sick of hearing something that you just can't wait for it to be over. So whenever this tune would crop up informally, my biggest desire was for this to be over soon and to move on to another tune. And, and this is what happens when you hear something too much. You, you actually can't stay with it and you can't really hear what's in it. So then one day I'm teaching a master class somewhere and, uh, and I'm trying to explain to these students that uh, tr each traditional tune is a self-contained conversation within itself. I say almost every Irish melody opens with a phrase, like a statement, like a sentence, like the beginning of a conversation. So the sailor's bonnet goes, down. That's the first sentence. So I go, and then we go, okay, and you go, so that's the answer. So we state it again. So when I finish explaining that to the class, I go, you know what? This Terrible tune is actually very beautiful, and uh, <laughs> and, and so I really, I, I it made me stop and think. I wonder how many more terrible tunes are really beautiful, <laughs> and I realised an awful lot, an incredible amount, in fact, and 
So I take this tune to the gloaming then and I say, well, maybe we should just play it the way I tried to play it for the class and, and, and see if the broader world could experience it. So I said, there's only one change in the end of the phrase when I go, and then I go, so I said to Dennis and to Thomas, I said, just play a chord when I hit the last note each time. And that will make clear to everybody the conversational structure of the melody. And lo and behold, millions of people actually got it. You know, it was kind of, so it's, it's anyway. Ladies and gentlemen, frozen food failure, master of world music, Martin Hayes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to say a thank you. Uh, well, listen, thank you very much for coming out. Thank you for being here. Um, thanks to Gary. Thanks to the concert hall. Uh, thanks to... Uh, Penguin and Transworld uh, for um, encouraging me to do this. Uh, I think most people, they say, have at least one book in them. And, uh, and I think very few of you will write it because unless somebody signs you up and puts a deadline in front of you, um, it's almost impossible to do. Uh, but a deadline is quite an amazing thing, on the other hand, because like, uh, it, it did force me to do this. And, uh, and I had been pondering it, and I do love to talk about music and share the ideas. And of course, I ended up writing a memoir, which was a surprise to me. Uh, 
Anyway, I'd like to thank uh, Fiona Murphy, who was the person who first uh, approached me from Penguin about doing this and kind of made me feel like it was possible. I'd like to thank Tara King, who helped out tremendously in helping me shape these ideas. Louise Farrell, who I've been working with and who's here as well, uh, who's helped, you know, organizing the promotion and all of that. Um, I'd like to thank Michael and Ken uh, from Faction uh, Management, who've been kind of looking after my career and helping organize all of these uh, things that, that go on in my life. Uh, thank you guys so much. Um, I'd like to thank Gary Sheehan here at the concert hall, who's been a continuous support and help and a creative uh, um, partner in so many things that I do. I, I'd like to... Um, how about it? I mean, like, I, I found it hard, like, to go back and edit this book and read it many times, but you read it twice. Yeah. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, and uh, what a gentleman. I couldn't have uh, Thanks, asked Martin. for a nicer partner um, on the stage. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I, ma'am, I'm going to ask you, because they don't have to, can we have one more tune? Yes, Donald, you can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Donald Dineen, ladies and gentlemen. And... Um, The, the, the staff here at, at the concert hall, of course, have been fabulous all, all these years and uh, love coming here. It feels like home. Thank you guys, all of you, very much. Um, there's no way I would have written this book uh, without uh, my dear wife, Lena, uh, who, like, when this, this contract had come up and every now and again she would say, I'd be watching television or something, she Maybe you should be writing the book, do you think? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, go, yeah, yeah. Well, you know the kind of procrastination that goes on. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but she, she really believed that I, I had something to say and she really believed I could do it. And, uh, and that's hugely important uh, in the person you're with and uh, the person in your life that they encourage and help you and support you so much that way. And I, I do believe that my wife, Lena, actually has a better story than me and, and is a better writer and uh, all of these things. But fate has landed that I was the one writing the book. But it turns out she was actually doing a, an online course on autobiographical writing at the time. And, uh, and she gave me a huge amount of uh, wonderful and valuable suggestions uh, and um, and really encouraged me to be honest and truthful and uh, probably there's a lot of like fiddle breaking, um, drinking, escapades and calamities that, that I might have been reluctant to write had she not encouraged me to be courageous and honest. And, uh, and I also feel on some level that being honest about that kind of nonsensical stuff that happened in my life at least lends some credence to the beauty of the other things that I've experienced and that at least you know those are also real. And uh, for all of that and for being the love in my life, I thank Lena very, very much. <laughs> what would you like to hear, Lena? What did you say? 
the lark in the, the lark in the clear air, I bet. Yeah, is it? Okay. Okay, so this is imagine it's Sunday morning. <laughs> and this Kiran Makmahuna, which you mentioned yeah. earlier. So it's, it's smell, Gerald, of, it's, smell of polish and fried eggs. Yes, it's 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 Geraldine O'Grady, the great uh, Irish classical violinist, plays um, the lark in the clear air. And you know what I did recently? I I I, I went on iTunes and I go, I bet Geraldine O'Grady is on there playing that. And so it was, and I played it. And you know what? I never heard the whole thing until recently, you know, because like, it was just the section because we'd it, only yeah. hear a section mm. of it every Sunday morning. It, it is so beautiful. I mean, it, it is kind of a little bit like a classical beauty from another time in, in some ways, but it is still remarkably, remarkably beautiful. And uh, anyway, it's a beautiful old air. This is a very old tune. And, uh, and thank you all. And I just have to say um, to you... Uh, supporters, friends, audience. Um, I can only do what I do uh, because you come and you listen and you support. Uh, and, uh, and because you do, I create and I try to deliver. And uh, thank you very, very much. None of it would happen without you either. So anyway.